Welcome to Revolve, where we explore big questions from all angles. Each season, we use one big question to dive into a topic with experts, showing how perspective matters in building thoughtful solutions. I'm Trip Williams. Season 2. What can we do to mitigate the effect of climate change for those who will be most affected by it? This season, we talk with experts to explore transforming industries like manufacturing and finance into environmental allies and how we support communities impacted by climate change the most. Today, I'm excited to welcome John Verdick, the Director of International Climate Policy at the Nature Conservancy, which works to conserve the lands and waters on which all life depends, and which includes tackle climate change as one of its four guiding strategic priorities for the organization overall. Before joining TNC, John worked for eight years as a foreign affairs officer with the U.S. State Department, where he was the UNFCCC, and I'm going to help the listeners with this one. It's the United Nations Framework for the Convention on Climate Change, Mitigation Negotiator in the U.S. State Department's Office of Global Change in the Bureau of Oceans, Environment, and Science. John holds a Master's in International Relations and Management from the University of California at San Diego and a bachelor's in international affairs and Spanish from the University of Colorado at Boulder. Welcome, John. I'm really excited to have you on today. Hi, Tripp. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, this, you know, this season, we're ta- digging into the question of how to slow climate change and support high-quality life on our planet. And th- it sounds like a pretty straightforward place to start from. Uh, to be very, very clear and careful, I want to start by defining a key term in that sentence to be sure we're all talking about the same thing today. Uh, so climate change carries, as as a concept, different meanings for different people. What does climate change mean to you and your partners? Yeah, well, you know, climate change is a tricky thing because when we're talking about global climate change, we're talking about the changes that are made in different places all over the globe that have different effects. Uh, we're seeing different modeling and we're seeing different experiences over time of what that means in different areas. Uh, which is a lot of the reason why we see the the word has changed or the or the term has changed from global warming to climate change because some areas uh, you know over time the average temperature in the earth is seeing warming but not every place in the world is seeing the same warming there there might be some uh, discrete places around the globe that are actually going to see cooling just because changing weather patterns um, but overall what we're seeing is increased frequency of storms we're seeing increased severity of storms. We're seeing changing weather patterns. And one of the really tough things with it is, is we don't totally know what's going to happen in any one place. Um, but what we do know is that things are happening and things are getting worse. Yeah, and you may have already answered this question, but in case there's something else here, I wanted to know, again, the concept is such a large and abstract one for a lot of people. What's one major misunderstanding people have about climate change? I think one of the things I hear the most is from people saying, how does this affect me? Um, you know, climate change, it, it, it tends to happen on you know, slower scales over, over years and years and years, which makes it harder for us to notice as individual people. Um, but it's the kind of thing, it, it doesn't just have to be somebody living near a coastal area that's going to see sea level rise. It could also be a farmer inland um, and maybe a high altitude area that is going to see drier weather patterns because of changing, um, changing weather that's, that's bringing in the different moisture elements. So it's going to affect everybody in different ways. Um, even even other people that might not see it to change them and, and touch them in those two ways that I just mentioned, it could be see, uh, it could be people that are buying food at the grocery store might see uh, prices go up 
that they're going to see prices go up because the farmer is having different inputs that are going to change the uh, the cost of, of the food that's grown. That's really helpful. Thank you for uh, for helping us get there. The, the the next thing I wanted to dive into, John, is when it comes to the policy formation process, and, and we're going to talk a little bit more about your current work at TNC in a moment, but I wanted to step back into a previous experience you had. You, had, you spent eight years working in the public sector with the State Department, as we mentioned at the top, and where you led negotiations on climate policy. And, and I'm curious if you can bring us inside that process. For a lot of us who haven't been there, it can, it can be frustrating to watch negotiations take such a long time and seemingly stall consistently. And I'm, help us understand what a negotiation life cycle is like. Yeah, you know, I, th I think the biggest difference from being inside that process and being one of the negotiators, and, and I know I negotiated a couple different um, kind of subgroup rooms that are within the, the UN Framework Convention for Climate Change. So for the first number of years, I, I did the negotiations on the forest elements um, and how to reduce emissions from uh, forest degradation and deforestation. Um, those sort of things. And then I moved into the overall uh, mitigation negotiations, which is all emissions from forest agriculture to transportation to uh, to energy. Um, and even just having to say those different number of sectors gives you mm. a, a bit of an insight into what I'm going to say of the differences. Is sure. There are so many things going on at the same time in different subrooms on different negotiation streams that they all interplay with each other. So in a way, what, what kind of comes out in the news oftentimes is, is one or two pieces that are going slow or that are going fast or that failed or succeeded. What it doesn't look at, and, and I think a lot of the negotiators look at, is that this is kind of a dance between you know nearly 200 countries with different interests for different reasons, trying to come together on, on maybe 10 or 20 different elements at the same time. Um, and, and many of these elements actually have deliverables that were set a year or two before of when they're supposed to be decided. So sometimes you're trying to agree with, you know, 200 countries on, say, a finance negotiation of when the deliverables will come for finance, while at the same time other countries that their goal is to get increased reductions in emissions, mm. but that's set up to be delivered the next year. So sometimes you're always trying to create a bridge between these different elements, and and it kind of does create a lot of um, interpersonal moves uh, or just kind of conversations that need to happen to to slowly bring these things together. Sure. And layering that, of course, with the realities of each each country's own domestic considerations, right? That there's a whole interplay and and a whole host of things that are being considered at the at the national level before they even come into that room. Absolutely. You know, um, each country has different legislation at home that allows them to agree to different things or not agree to different things. Um, they have different interagency processes um, coming back from home, you know, as um as someone who worked for the U.S. State Department, we always consulted with the U.S. Department of Agriculture and Energy and, and different organizations in the U.S. before we went to you know, speak on behalf of the U.S. Mm -hmm. So it's not just one person that's speaking in the room. It's actually someone speaking on behalf of the government. Sure, sure. And so knowing all of this or considering all of this, what are some of the things you observed consistently as big sticking points in climate negotiations in particular? Yeah, I, I think um, the big sticking points are, are the kind of big, the big obligations that different countries would need to have. Um, and, and probably two of the biggest ones ranging from what you would see developed countries and developing countries would often want 
One was overall reduction in greenhouse gas emissions and who is, um, who is on the hook to do the reductions and who is off the hook. So if you say like some countries are responsible to do it, does that also mean other countries are not? Because there's always a bit of a, you know, is, is this your problem to solve? Is this my problem to solve? Or does everybody have an equal um, obligation to solve it at the same time together? Mm-hmm. Um, and then another piece is, is the climate finance. Um, who pays what? How much do they need to pay? Um, you know, one of the tricky things that, that often came up as, as, a, as a sticking point each year was different countries also have different budget processes at home. Um, for example, the United States has a one-year annual budget process where Congress allocates budgets. Um, so the United States cannot really come in and make a five-year pledge. Mm-hmm. Um, other countries do have a longer, you know, five or a 10 year budget cycle that can do those kind of pledges. So when you're trying to, you know, write down what is the obligation for the pledge, you have different countries with different abilities to move in different ways. Yeah. And what about the other side of that? The, again, watching from afar, uh, some, depending upon whatever round of negotiations that folks are in, it can seem like there are countries or, or representatives that are just difficult Right. And at the same time, I have a, a sense that there actually are things that are pretty easy for people to agree on. So I'm wondering, are there examples in, in your experience that are actually pretty well agreed upon and that everybody in the room has a pretty solid uh, um, understanding across, you know, even across the political spectrum, what it is that is to be accomplished? Are, are there things that are sort of easy to lift? I'm not sure any one thing is easy. Um, almost, <laughs> <laughs> as, as you asked, I'm trying to think of one, but where my mind goes on this is, is where it's easy is, is the broad goal is very easy. We want to reduce the impacts of climate change. Um, that you see all countries agree on. How to do that, who is responsible to do that, and how is it going to happen kind of as it goes deeper and gets into the more intricate details, it gets harder and harder. But that overall kind of everybody says yes at the beginning and they all nod and then it kind of gets difficult in the middle of the negotiation process of a number of days. Mm-hmm. And then at the very end, you find a way to kind of come to an agreement and then um, and then it hopefully comes in. And, and the hard part is you see people kind of dig in and, and everybody's wondering where different red lines for different countries are or where they're they're using more of a negotiation tactic. And um, and that's always the hard thing, because it's not just, you know, one person negotiating with one person it's you know you have you know if it's in a forest room you probably have 30 countries that are really interested parties that this really affects them and kind of going around in a circle and, and it takes a little time versus you know in a, a different room on an energy you'll probably see a different group of countries that will have bigger interests in there just because their their local economies are more based on energy versus agriculture or something and did you see that that unanimous upfront agreement on the big goal was that something that you saw change or, or I guess come to be over time because I know you you must have been there. you were at you're there at a critical time when it seemed like scientific consensus was building and there was more and more irrefutable proof that things were happening right um, and I did did that did you see from the moment you started until you left that there was that unanimous upfront up agreement or was there something that brought that agreement into into formation while you were there? Um. I would say both. Uh, it, it's, it does tend to be a long process um, because, as I mentioned earlier, there's numerous deliverables that are slated, you know, in text. You know, maybe the 2010 uh, text says that a certain deliverable is supposed to come in in 2015. 
and so you know things are kind of set year by year by year um, so that they can kind of build a, a cyclical process that, that can work. Um, but at the same time, you know, I came in in 2010. It was just after a year. You know, 2009 was the Copenhagen negotiations, and you know, it was kind of seen as a failure. But um, because there wasn't a full agreement, but it did come out with the Copenhagen Accord. Uh, the Copenhagen Accord started a lot of what we saw come out in 2015 under the Paris Agreement, which is there used to be the Kyoto Protocol where developed countries had obligations and developing countries did not. Um, as we saw developing countries start to have more and more emissions and many developing countries start to you know, grow their economies, there was this acknowledgement that you know, everybody needed to do more. Um, and, and in that sort of thing, you saw in Copenhagen a number of developing countries come forward and say they would put in targets. Um, the targets were more flexible and they often called for more climate finance to do that. And I think that's where you started seeing progress year after year and build up the momentum to get you know this you know amazing Paris Agreement that we got in 2015. Um, with that came the other kind of scientific part of your question was the the goal at the time kept changing because the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, kept getting better and better data and putting out new reports. So the, um, the Paris Agreement goal states that you know it's a goal to stay below two degrees. But also with an aim to stay even below 1.5. Mm-hmm. Um, that 1.5 number, that I, I would say there was no way anybody would have agreed to that five or ten years before the Paris Agreement. So that's one of the things where science really built that that pressure up. Yeah, and if you could, just for the benefit of the audience, just maybe a one-minute summary of why that number is so important. Yeah, well, it's um, it's it's a number where the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is a group of you know hundreds of climate scientists from around the world with peer-reviewed literature, put all of their literature together um, to come out with a report. And it comes around in about five-year cycles um, with the update of the best of the science. The the science at the time shows started showing that you know two degrees before that, but then they started to find out that really 1.5 degrees above what was kind of you know numbers that can't hurt global temperatures from the before the industrial revolution so we know like about the last 200 years temperatures have gone up this much we're starting to see that 1.5 number is what we think is is maybe about of a tipping point um where we are going to start seeing the major impacts we're going to start seeing you know it's going to be harder to be more resilient on our coasts we're going to see more global warming everywhere it's going to affect more things um so yeah so that that previous number that used to be kind of commonly agreed was two degrees centigrade above pre-industrial numbers and then that has now moved into more of a 1.5. Yeah and I think what's tricky and we'll we touched a little bit on this before and and we'll get into it in a bit but what's tricky about that is um, that number as I understand it is is a measure that takes temperatures across the globe right so it's not necessarily that it's a 1.5 degree centigrade increase in Omaha or um, or Miami in in situ, right? It's a it's a concept of taking or or trying to calculate the globe as a whole. Correct. Okay, that that's good. And I hope so. I wanted to blend together temperatures from Bangladesh to the United States to Saudi Arabia to Brazil. Yeah, exactly. Great, great. Well, again, John, one of the reasons why I'm very excited to have you on today is the organization that you work with now, the Nature Conservancy, is a global leader in conservancy efforts overall, in particular for a long time in land and sea conservation. And I would love for you to share with us sort of how TNC has come to be more involved in climate change policy and what you see makes TNC as a 
a particularly well positioned organization to lead that conversation? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think TNC has been a leader in, in land and sea conservation for a long time. Um, you know, we have decades of experience starting from, you know, our early work was was mostly in the United States, and then we've started to branch out globally um, maybe 20 years ago. And seeing that climate change is becoming such a thing of our times, and there is so much more need for action um, than was previously known. We've gone from a conservation organization, you know, that looked, you know, early on, we wanted to make sure that we were conserving uh land that we are conserving mm -hmm. oceans and everything now we're also trying to build in the, the climate change component to that too which is making the lands and oceans more resilient to the changes of climate change and also reducing emissions where we can um, i think the most important things and where our strategy is is different from some is we take a very science-based approach um, we take the best of science from around the world we do a lot of science from around the world where we target where the best impacts can be made um, with our interventions and we try to go there and, and we take, you know, a, a really detailed look at all that. We also have lots of solutions because of our, our past. Um, we know which kind of activities work in which kinds of countries. Um, we know in certain areas that there are different reasons why you would want to reforest an area that's been deforested versus um, trying to change um, agricultural practices. And are those two things intertwined? Um, you know, what we would do in Iowa is definitely different than we would don't want to do in Washington state because we know these two biomes are differently. Sure. Wonderful. And I know too, just to click a little bit further into TNC's strategy when it comes to working on climate change, uh, there's, I've, I've seen comments you've made and the organization has made about nature's role in combating climate change. And I'd love for you to share a little bit more about what that means exactly and, and how you see nature playing a role in combating climate change. Absolutely. You know, what we mean by nature's role is nature is a technology. If you want to look at it as that we're, we're hearing, you know, we have some wonderful new technologies out both with, you know, solar panels, uh, with cars that run on less fuel than have fewer emissions. We also have this wonderful technology called nature. Uh, we know that trees and landscapes can absorb, uh, carbon dioxide, that they can store it, that they can uh, do all these different things. Sorry, I just had my son join me in my room. Welcome to COVID. That's okay. That's all right. <laughs> we, we have all these wonderful um, pieces of nature that we know have been doing this for uh, millennia. So why not take advantage of this? One of the things we've done with a bunch of our scientific information is we've looked at what actual impact could nature make. And we found that about a third of the needed reductions in global greenhouse gas emissions to meet that um, two degree, 1.5 degree uh, target that I mentioned earlier to stay below uh, a tipping point for climate change, uh, about 30% of the needed emission reductions are available by 2030 just from nature. And, and by nature, I mean, you know, better agricultural practices by having less runoff by using, you know, better um, and cleaner practices in the ground by preserving our forests and also by changing land use practices uh, where we would site a mall versus making sure that we use um, maybe degraded land for the mall rather than cutting down a new forest. So it's really exciting prospect for you know countries around the globe from the United States to China to Colombia. And where can you reduce the most emissions for the lowest cost is another part that we try to look at. And that um, governments know that they have a certain amount of money 
where they have a certain amount of potential to reduce their emissions as they're trying to meet commitments to the Paris Agreement. We're trying to help them kind of cite these well. We're trying to help them build the science of where exactly they should do it and how they should do it and um, what uh, what inputs and what outputs they can expect. Yeah, and I, I like and appreciate your um, the way you started that full explanation that nature being a technology and in a lot of ways the best technology, right? We we strive to replicate some of the efficiencies we see in nature and and oftentimes haven't haven't really been able to. So. Um, and John, I'd love to maybe get into a little bit more detail if there are a few projects in particular, um, either on nature's role or other things TNC is involved with that um, that you and your team are are looking at or, or getting involved with, and maybe share a little bit with the audience about some of the activities that that are ongoing right now. Yeah, thanks. Um, one of the big things we see going on in climate change this year is you know, right now it's it's the five-year anniversary of the Paris Agreement being signed. And in that agreement, countries committed to reducing their greenhouse gas emissions by a certain percentage. You know, each country is a little bit different. Um, we are now working with a number of countries, um, Colombia for one example. We're working with them to do that scientific work that I was telling you about. We have better monitoring from satellites. We have better um, ground data. Um, that is starting to find out where are um, the best interventions that Colombia can take to reduce its emissions as much as possible to implement its current uh, target to the Paris Agreement. But we're also helping them kind of figure out where they can plan their next five-year target. Because each country has a five-year target that is supposed to get, you know, kind of ratchet down the emissions and get better and better and better. So in one way, we're trying to help them um, implement. On the backside, we're trying to help them get ready for the next one and then implement as well. So in Colombia, it looks at um, different interventions. It looks at how do we change um, some of the practices going on. You know, in the northwest of Colombia, you have a lot of different um, plantations going on for different products, um, for different global commodities that are coming out. So whether it's palm oil, whether it's beef, that sort of thing. How do we make sure that farmers can still uh, produce their, their commodities they need to sell so that they can have livelihoods and support their families, at the same time do it in a way that that allows for better um, reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. We're doing that sort of work country by country. Um, and with support, it is helping those countries deliver their commitments to the Paris Agreement. Um, one thing that's kind of important about that outside of just one country by one country is the climate negotiations are a bit of a delicate dance of every country looking at what other countries are doing. That Nobody wants to be the country that's so far out front and um, you know, possibly reduces some economic gains that they could have from a certain industry when another country is not. So in a way, as, as we help each country do it, we're, we're kind of helping them do it tit for tat and a slow kind of walk forward uh, with other countries as well. Wonderful. The, I want to circle back to a topic that came up at the, at the beginning, and you were mentioning to the audience that, uh, that things aren't, aren't maybe going to be confined to coastal cities, right? The impact of climate change isn't going to be something that is only going to have have an impact on those areas that are featured in the news, right? So what are the, some of the effects? And you mentioned some things like changes in farming practices, but what are some of those things that might impact every somebody everywhere? And, and I'm thinking, you know, I've, I've read and seen reports about, so I'm based in Seattle, there's, there's projections that Seattle's daily average temperature within a century could be 80 degrees. For some people that might sound lovely, uh, it sounds alarming to somebody who, who's grown up here. 
Um, and I take that as an example of something that is a bit unexpected when I've been watching and tracking climate change projections and seeing how different coastal cities might be underwater within a century, right? So I'm just curious if you can share with us a little bit more for, for those who feel or, or seem more insulated from some of the impact, um, you know, what are some of those things that everybody might not be able to, to avoid? Yeah, I think the scariest part of that question is, is that we don't know yet um, in every instance. And, and that sort of thing is, you know, Seattle's temperature going up might not cause a bunch of um, giant changes. It might. Um, and, and that's the kind of thing that we're going to see play out as temperatures do get warmer. Um, if, if Seattle's average temperature does go up that much, you also have to think, does the humidity stay the same? Because that mm -hmm. much temperature plus a, a, a constant humidity is going to make different variations on, on what that's going to affect. And, and then also, you know, we're going to see the opposite happen in a lot of places. We're going to see a lot of other places get much drier. Um, it, you look at the southwest of the United States and, you know, it's a dry area to start with. But we're seeing greater droughts. Um, we're seeing things come up like Lake Mead um, and in different areas that you know might be uh, might be a water source for a city like Las Vegas. How is that sort of thing and, and greater evaporation rates and less water coming down the Colorado River? How does that affect you know just community after community after community that are dependent on these long-standing environmental sources like water, um, good soil in an area? If it starts to get drier, how does it dry up and how does that affect what farmers can grow? Um, do they need to change their crops or do they just have lower yields? Um, and so that's all the kind of stuff that some of that is climate change. And, and some of it's also just good environmental stewardship um, that changes these things as well, too, which is, you know, a hard thing that sometimes we have to parse out is, you know, it, is, is the lower water availability because of climate change or is it because, you know, there's poor stewardship upriver um, and maybe we're just drinking too much water or using too much for our lawns, um, that sort of thing. Yeah, and I appreciate you mentioning uh, this to how the complexity is beyond our, our our full understanding today, right? We've seen isolated instances in the in the last century or so of of species being removed and having cascading effects that couldn't have been anticipated, right? And and I think you're right. There's a specter that there's a whole other host of those sorts of things that could come as um, as major systems are modified. So. Uh, yeah, it's it's a hopeful. I think I've been in my again in my personal research. I've I've just become more and more humble as I've read more and more about how little I know and how the scientific community also seems to be pretty straightforward with their acknowledgement that there's a lot more to learn. Yeah, and and, and it also goes into you know the other side. You mentioned the biodiversity thing, which is really important, um, and. You know, a lot of the work that we want to do, we, we want to reduce emissions, we want to build resilient uh, landscapes, but we also don't want that to be at the peril of existing biodiversity in the area. Like we don't want to go in and, and build just um, palm plantations over a giant swath of land and wipe out all the native species that are living there. Mm -hmm. um, that would actually be good probably for a carbon sequestration in some areas, um, but it on the other hand is, is going to be devastating for some, for some plants and animals in the area. Um, one, one also very you know, interesting element that goes into some of what we do is we need to build more resilient um, landscapes, more resilient oceans, more resilient wetlands. Sometimes it, it gets really tricky as well, too, because if you have a coastal area, and it's, you know, name a country, and the road is close to the coast, and say the coast is eroding, is the climate finance that needs to be applied to that going to help 
build a new road or is it going to help recite the road? Um, what if the mm. country wants to make the road larger? Does, does climate finance need to play into that? Or is that actually just an, a, a normal infrastructure piece? Um, and how do you kind of blend different finance streams to, to get what different, um, different groups will want to build? That's, that's, that's helpful. That's really, really helpful to hear. The, the thing too, John, and we've touched on this a little bit in this conversation, but again, climate change being such a large, abstract, slowly evolving, um, at least in the human sense, maybe not so much in, in recent sense and planetary timescales, but it, it is something that can be so difficult to wrap one's mind around and also to think about potentially having a positive impact on, right, as a person, to what is it somebody can do individually, right, to help mitigate the impact, to, and I'm specifically thinking of, are there things that people can do to protect nature and even support people in the places that are going to be impacted most directly? Yeah, you know, I, I think, you know, the old adage of uh, think globally, but act locally helps, you know, each one of us, um, you know, it's, it's hard for somebody that lives in Washington state or Washington DC to, to affect something directly, maybe in Zambia, but it is something that, you know, every day we can make better decisions about um, using less energy in our house and turning lights off when we leave the simple things, um, recycling, um, all of the different things that we can do on a daily basis to help, but then also, you know, get involved, um, get involved in your local community, um, go out and, and find some conservation international um, groups that are working in our area, the Nature Conservancy, World Wildlife Fund, and American Forest. There's all these great groups that are doing work all over the country and all over the world. Um, find a local one and, and get involved and get and get out there and, and do it. And then, you know, lastly, I think, you know, each of us works and, and lives in a different um, state and city and everything and, and get out and vote and vote for people that are supporting climate change action um, and, and make this more of a, a higher priority. Wonderful. And I want to end on a on a positive note here, John. So you've been steeped in the climate change conversation for a decade plus. And I would love to know, in all of your experience and exposure, what's one reason you see for us to be hopeful in our effort to slow climate change? I think the one reason um, I'm seeing is that it is it is a part of our daily media cycle um, to see that the environment and that climate change is important now. I, I feel like a decade ago and two decades ago, um, it wasn't such a common thing to see a climate change. You know, it, it seemed like it was a very environmentalist agenda. Now it seems like a people agenda and, and kind of all across the board. So I think as, as public opinion starts to come around, um, we start to see different political processes build around it. And then, um, you know, I, I think ultimately that helps, but then, you know, what we're going to need is, is we now have the information to do the work on the climate change. We have solutions that are available, but we need everybody to be bold and, and take some individual steps and take group steps to, to, to reduce the effects of it. And what would you offer to listeners who are now eager to go increase their understanding? Is there a resource I, I would concur and in, in sort of second your recommendation to plug in some of to some of the big conservation organizations. And I would say TNC, I would highly recommend listeners consider. Um, but is there another resource or even even a book or a blog article website that you think is particularly helpful for people who want to learn more or get involved? Oh, wow. There, you know, there's so many. Um, there are there's there's wonderful information um, still on the Environmental Protection Agency's website. There's uh, there's I, I think the wonderful thing about Google now is you can actually just Google some of these questions and it'll lead you to, to some great 
climate change information, but obviously looking at the, the original sources, looking at some of the, the science data coming out. Um, I think one, one, of, one really interesting thing of what we just talked about of nature's role, there's a Nature Conservancy blog um, and, and a website that is called uh, Nature for Climate, the number four. And it takes a really kind of international and nature-based approach that, that brings together a bunch of the big um, environmental NGOs from around the world and, and kind of puts us together in, in a similar communications platform. Um, you get to see maps of the world and where emission um, reductions are possible. You get to see within the U.S. states where emission reductions are possible, kind of down to county level data. Um, so in a way, it's, it's kind of a, a way, an interactive way that you can look around, um, find out solutions, but also see a whole bunch of, of great media that's coming out along with it. Fantastic. John, I want to thank you very, very much for, for joining. Your voice is a, is a really valuable and, and informed one that I think the audience is going to benefit significantly from, and I know the show has already. So I really appreciate you joining, and thank you for a, for a really rich conversation today. Thank you, Trevin. Thanks a lot for the opportunity. Thanks for listening. Check the show notes for links and information mentioned in the episode. And explore the other episodes in this season to learn more on this topic. Before we go, subscribe to our show to get new episodes as soon as they come online. And please rate us on whatever podcast app you use. That helps other people discover the show as well. We'd be excited to hear from you. Send us a mail at revolvepodcast at gmail.com. <laughs>